Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very fortunate today to be joined not by not one, but two Great guests and people that I've actually really wanted to get on the podcast for quite some time. Um, I'm very lucky to be joined by Kevin and Brian, who are both uh, partners and co-founders uh, from MTech Capital. Um, gentlemen, good more. Well, it's good morning my time. Um, it, it, when we release the podcast, it's, it's the, the the mythical nature of podcasts, and we're obviously doing it in the afternoon. But um, um, welcome, and you're joining us from different locations, aren't you, as well? So. Um, but before we dive into that, actually, um, perhaps you could one by one introduce yourselves and, and, and your role within the organization. Um, and then one of you can take the banner of introducing MTech. But um, just by the way, that the nature of my screen, Brian, perhaps you can uh, you can run with that one to start with. Sure. My name is uh, Brian McLaughlin. I'm one of the partners and co-founders of MTech Capital. Uh, my partner is also my brother, uh, Kevin McLaughlin. Uh, we uh, founded the firm uh, basically because we had these really complementary backgrounds, and I'll cover my background, and Kevin can cover his, and then he'll talk about the firm. Uh, I was a you know investment banker uh, a long time ago, and then ended up uh, as a um, uh, a fintech uh, CFO, and from that ended up as a fintech VC uh, quite early on in the in the fintech wave. Um, call it, you know, 2003, 2004, I was 100% of the time uh, focused on fintech investing as a partner at uh, Upfront Ventures uh, in Los Angeles, which is where I live. And um, it was Kevin who uh, said to me um, in 2017, uh, boy, uh, in in my role as an investment banker covering the insurance space, CEOs are really uh, interested in talking about technology. Um, and, um, and so Kevin came up with the idea. I think uh, it's time for me to leave my job and let's go uh, form an insure tech uh, venture fund. But before I get too far ahead, I'll turn it over to Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Kevin McLaughlin. I'm um, co-founder and partner with Brian at Bemtech Capital. Um, I started my career at AIG in the insurance industry. 
uh, was on the finance and investment side there for uh, nearly eight years, and then went into investment banking, where I spent the next uh, 23 years uh, covering the insurance industry. And, um, you know, Brian, uh, at, that, at that time, was this partner at Upfront Ventures. Uh, I was coming out of investment banking. We did see parallels between the development of, of fintech and um, the emerging uh, insured tech space, but with about a 10-year lag. And so we were in, in, in fierce agreement that there was an opportunity here to generate outsized financial returns over the next you know, couple of decades, really, as the insurance industry goes through a transformation driven by technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'll add is that, um, uh, and in our angle for the fund, was to provide to insurance companies uh, more than just financial returns, because in fact, insurance companies are our limited partners. So we decided that to have some edge in the market to drive those top tier financial returns, we should uh, build an ecosystem for the benefit of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And that ecosystem would have limited partners who are insurance companies, brokers and technology providers to the insurance space. We'd invite all of them to be limited partners in the firm, uh, you know, investors, if you will. And, um, and uh, in so doing, make this network available to entrepreneurs. Um, and so we have the luxury uh, with our fund, and we, we launched the fund, by the way, in mid-2018 with $100 million dollars. Uh, with uh, large insurance carriers uh, as our investors um, and some brokers as well. And uh, what entrepreneurs have quickly told us is not only you, you two folks and your team clearly have this expertise that we find very hard to find in the generalist uh, VC community, but then you also have this great connectivity with, uh, with the industry uh, with all of it, yes, your limited partners, but then the hundred other uh, insurance carriers and brokers and technology providers we keep in touch with. Because yes, we'd like them to be an investor in a, a subsequent fund. Uh, but in the meantime, we want to make sure that our portfolio has, uh, you know, our CEOs have access to uh, this network. And we, and we borrowed the idea from uh, my old um, a, a firm's experience where um, MasterCard I was an investor in um, Upfront, and it was to get the same strategic benefits and insights um, uh, from us uh, as investors in fintech every day. We borrowed that and, and brought it to MTech Capital, and it's worked out exceedingly well. And mm. so as a result, we can be a stage agnostic investor, meaning we can invest from um, a PowerPoint presentation pre-seed all the way to late stage. And even in a late stage um, round where, where an entrepreneur is raising, you know, $40 million and we can only write a $3 million check in our, in our small fund, they are happy to take our money. They want our insights. They want our connectivity in the market. They want access to that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they often invite us uh, uh, to be a uh, board observer, uh, even with that relatively small check. And I want to say out of, 22 core investments we've made out of the fund. I think we're on a, 
the board as either a, um, a proper board member or as an observer in you know 19 out of 22. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think my naivety when I first started dealing with uh, venture firms and, and you know, that's how we get some of our strategic relationships. We're a recruitment provider. We tend to kind of uh, engage with uh, certain venture firms uh, portfolios is that I didn't realize quite how important it was. I, I thought it was all about writing checks at, at the right time. And, and the sort of power of the networking um, appears to be the differentiator um, because, you know, I'm skipping ahead here, but we've, we're touching on it now. It's like, is is that how you would draw your key differential as a as a venture capital firm? Because it, it is hard, I think, at times to kind of differentiate the offering, you know. Because I think I think that sometimes comes down to the uh, the 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 business that's trying to get funding. Yeah, the way that they view the venture partner that they're looking for, the way they look look at investors, you know, the the smart money the smart money goes to the smart entrepreneur one one would assume who knows that they're getting more than just just a check so you know you know perhaps you you could answer this individually that is is that your differentiator as you touched on the networks or, or, or is there more to it than that that you would see as what makes mtech capital as a different venture partner than other businesses i think it's it's our ecosystem as brian outlined um and um, it's our backgrounds. Mm. So I think we bring a lot to the firm um, and therefore a lot to entrepreneurs. So if, if they are in a luxurious position of being able to choose uh, which VC firm to take funding from um, and kind of at that point, you know, all, all capital is fungible, they are looking definitely for what uh, VCs can add over and above capital. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that network of our comprised of our LPs, but also, as Brian said, our broader uh, insurance relationships globally are critically important as, as a differentiator. I mean, we can open doors, um, make introductions to a lot of carriers for them. Um, we also, by the way, use that ecosystem um, to, uh, I would say, let's say a, a vet or provide additional data points in our due diligence exercises. Mm -hmm. We are of course entirely independent in terms of what we invest in, but that ecosystem has, you know, multiple benefits for us and the entrepreneurs. So that's a key differentiator. And then second, our backgrounds. Sure. Sure. Um, One other I, thing I'll add Alex is um, because if you think about the, you know, likely recession we're heading into if we're not in one already, um, uh, capital providers are pulling back. Mm -hmm. And so when you have, when you're sector focused, when you have deep expertise, I think two things are at work. One, uh, um, you can have conviction and we feel this ourselves. When we see a great entrepreneur working at a really hard problem and we believe that there's a likelihood of success there, we can have greater conviction in a down market uh, or in a scary market than let's say the generalist VC who's just not sure and, and, and is not sure maybe what price to pay. Mm. And so um, uh, I think this will serve us well in the next 24 months or so as uh, it becomes a lot harder to raise capital and um, uh, prices should come down. And of course they have already in late stage uh, opportunities. 
And so I think there'll be some uh, great companies um, uh, either formed or financed in the next two years. And, and we intend to be part of those in the insurance sector. Mm. I was good. Okay, I, I, I want to dive into that, but that's that's uh, we're sort of we're, we're starting to touch on all these great questions that I'd like I'd lined up. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to, to something very very. You you two guys are in such a unique position to answer this question. So we've had um, European based funds, we've had UK based funds, and we've had uh, a, an American uh, VC fund, all insure tech specific that have come on the podcast. And we're always kind of having this conversation about the style of investing in in UK and Europe and the style of investing in US and being slightly different. Well. Yeah, you two gents are obviously different sides of the pond. Um, and I was wondering, you, you've got a unique position to have insight. Do you find there's a different um, approach to venture investing in in the UK as, as opposed to US? Um, or is that something that we just like to tell ourselves is <laughs> just uh, UK loves to be special. So I think I think the UK particularly. But do you think there's a different style there? I think it's getting less so. If I think about, uh, you know, even at my uh, old firm, we uh, we had an office in London and in LA as well. So it's a carbon copy of our current setup. And uh, it used to be starkly different. And, uh, and even there was a slight difference between East Coast and West Coast of the United States. Mm -hmm. And if you went from, you know, if, if uh, West Coast was pure gunslinger, just look at the entrepreneur, make a bet, who cares what the terms are in the term sheet, we don't need any protections. Mm -hmm. You had a slightly more structured approach to term sheets uh, in, in New York, let's say, compared to the West Coast. And then once you got to Europe, you could two exit. Uh, there would be even more structure and uh, concern about governance. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that has lessened uh, over the last, um, certainly over the last five, if not 10 years. Sure. Um, but then there are still idiosyncrasy uh, differences uh, between countries or, uh, you know, among countries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about you, Kevin? Do you echo that? <laughs> Do you echo that with the, with the London base? Does that, does that resonate with you? That, that, is it becoming more closely aligned? It, Alex, to be honest, it never crossed my mind. I just, I think fundamentally what we look for uh, in companies is the same in you know, regardless of geography, mm -hmm. the way we assess um, founders for talent is the same. Uh, you know, the financial metrics are the same mm -hmm. and the execution process is essentially the same. So no, I don't really see a difference. No, no, interesting. I think, I think the general kind of consensus was that the US-based funds were particularly kind of happier to our bigger checks at earlier stages i think that was typically what what we see and, and and i see that from a recruitment standpoint we tend to work with businesses that you know whatever someone calls a seed round in the us is usually sort of much bigger but then that could be reflective of the target market if they're going after a you oh, know, I, u.s insurance market in that respect yes mm -hmm. i mean the last time we looked at that the U.S. venture capital market was eight to ten x the size of the European venture capital market. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it it's not you know arbitrary that you get some larger insure techs in Europe who will migrate to the U.S. when they achieve a certain size to and need to 
you know, to raise kind of very large amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. So we do see definitely a deeper market um, in the U.S. for venture. Mm -hmm. And it's also also true, Alex, that we have to assess market opportunity on a country by country basis. You can't simply look at the EU and say, oh, there's an EU opportunity here. The, the, The insurance, the structure of insurance in each of the markets is sufficiently different and heterogeneous that um, um, you do end up sizing, let's say, for a UK company. What is the UK opportunity? And then where can they go from here? Mm-hmm. And in more than a few cases, uh, you know, UK companies choose to come to the US rather than to their next door neighbors in the EU. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a really good point. I do, I, I would say that what is noticeable, Alex, is the, um, while the EU is a single market. So if you start an insurance company, whether it's marketing or a regulated entity, right, your passport is across the whole EU. Um, as Brian is alluding to, there are you know, frictions still going across country and you know, language and culture are obvious ones, but sometimes the structures of the market are different. I would say that InsurTechs in the US, while there are 50 state regulators there, there is uh, considerably less friction, right, in expanding your business. So if we're talking about a comparison of the two geographies, I would say there's probably an inherent advantage given to the U.S. insurtechs to the extent that they can just, they've got an enormous market and it's virtually a single market, notwithstanding the fact that you've got 50 different regulators. That's interesting, particularly as well as 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 we're moving towards, not moving towards, but we've seen more of an interest in SaaS based investments uh, rather than if we take the kind of evolution of uh, what we've been looking at in the insure tech space. There's been lots of kind of digital MTAs, digital insurers, and that and there seems to be kind of a lot more interest in 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 SaaS propositions that help the existing market. Um, That's obviously you were outside of regulation then or particular most regulationary challenges because one of the challenges of regulated markets is obviously the sort of geographic differences um and uh yeah that's uh that that's something that we've seen in terms of growth but particularly the SaaS based companies that we work with in the u.s uh, sorry the uk there it's always you know point one on the map let's go to the u.s as quickly as possible because it's just such a big addressable market um I did want to ask you about this kind of London and US piece because, look, I know, you know, particularly because you're an insure tech focused fund, um, I'm I'm gathering that circumstantial because looking at your background, Kevin, you you've worked you've been in London quite a long time, so um, that was probably always going to stay the case. But th- does that give you a particular strategic advantage having those kind of those kind of two, you know, particular hubs of of insurance and insure tech innovation? Do you think that gives you an advantage as a fund that um, some other funds don't because lots of insure tech funds are, are relatively small. They tend to be solo location. Um, is that a sort of happy strategic advantage that you've managed to? I, I definitely think so. And it was a, um, it was a, uh, a fortunate coincidence that Brian was based in the US on the West Coast and I was based in London because from a, if you were kind of uh, designing the firm, you know, and um, from a geographic dimension, strategically, I think you want to be in London, which is, you know, um, um, really got a deep um, insurance culture to it. 
and a very vibrant insure tech scene. And it's of course a gateway into the rest of uh, continental Europe. Mm -hmm. And then in the US, you know, being on the West Coast uh, and the whole technology, you know, um, uh, history of um, West Coast US, I mean, it's a great place for Brian to be. So it's a coincidence because it was kind of a personal decision, probably less career based uh, that we live in these two uh, locations. But from our fund standpoint, I think it's ideal. And our, our limited partners uh, certainly see value in it uh, because in many cases, they're operating across those same geographies anyway. And uh, it is not one way that every good idea in InsureTech comes from the US and then, and then it gets borrowed in Europe. Uh, in a good number of markets, uh, innovation is started in Europe first um, around insurance and then, and then has in some way or another come to the US. And so um, seeing what works in which markets and when uh, uh, provides valuable insight, not only to us in our investment activity, but also our limited partners who are looking uh, for a set of eyes and ears in other markets as well. Mm. I was just thinking that makes you, it makes you particularly attractive if I'm a UK-based insurtech looking for investment is, is that because you've got those two sides of it that, you know, we get this, uh, you know, we can get an investor that is, is in London that we can face-to-face -face with if we need to, but then you've also got these kind of boots on the ground and LP knowledge and, uh, and network in the US that you can say, okay, once we kind of get to a certain size in the UK, if we want to expand it in the US, you've got that, that network and it comes back to those power of those networks again, that, that you've shared, which I think is, um, is a really interesting uh, proposition. Um, I wanted to change tactic a bit because there's something really important I think that you you've got on your website that I th that I wanted to discuss with you both because it's something I've had a conversation with a lot in my kind of recruitment hat so you've got an ESG policy on your website um, diversity goes beyond optics and, and 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 I love that and I think it's a great thing to have on your website as part of your um, ESG policy but what role do you think venture plays in driving the sort of diversity, equity, inclusion agenda. Um, and, and, and I suppose taking that, yeah, let's take it with that. And I, I wanted to talk about practical terms and kind of what you do about that. But what, like, what role do you think venture should play in the sort of diversity, equity and inclusion agenda? Um, who wants to take I, that hot potato? <laughs> I can, um, I can answer that question with respect to MTech Capital rather sure. than speaking for the whole venture industry. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we didn't set out to build our portfolio of 24 companies with diversity uh, as an explicit goal. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, we have uh, nearly a quarter of our uh, founders um, have diverse backgrounds. And, you know, when I think about the culture of our firm, it is based on um, respect for the individual, for everyone. Uh, and fairness and transparency. And so when we evaluate founders, um, we, we have those principles in mind and we are looking for the most talented entrepreneurs, period. Kind of frankly, regardless of background, that's what we're looking for. So in short, our goal is to maximize financial return um, and a critical component of that um, is 
identifying talented people. So it's actually not surprising that a significant part of our portfolio is comprised of diverse founders. Mm -hmm. And I'll add one thing, expanding that to the to the industry. Um, and maybe you'd think of this as a plug for the VC industry overall. I just think it's true uh, that uh, venture capital has been on the forefront of investing in whether it's first generation Americans, uh, uh, you know, coming over as immigrants, uh, they make up an entrepreneurial class and they get funding from the venture capital industry. Certainly in the United States, they do. And I think that pure meritocracy focus that was, you could say was maybe West Coast based, you know, 20 years ago has, uh, I believe, permeated the broader market. Um, and if Europe um, was a little bit behind there, and I'm not sure that it was, but if it was, um, I think that's lessened a lot uh, in the last 10 years in any case. So if we're going to compare industries, you know, which ones are hidebound uh, and rely on old networks and which ones embrace the brand new, uh, uh, you know, um, disruptor in the market who showed up from another country um, or might have a different gender or, uh, or, or uh, other orientation, uh, I think um, money, capital uh, goes to the best ideas with the most talented people. Mm. And, and, and the, the CEOs who can build the most talented teams. Mm. And I think that's been true for venture capital. So, um, and I think it's reflected in our portfolio as Kevin highlighted. Sure. I think it is true for venture that, that the right ideas get funded, but I do think there's a, it's very difficult to overcome inbuilt biases. So, so some of the complaints on the, on that we've had, particularly female founders and these people that have got funding. So they kind of, they've got less of an ax to grind was that, um, the statistically it's shown that for example women are, are asked kind of more negative focused questions so it's kind of all about challenging the idea rather than kind of focusing on how big an idea could get um and i wondered if, are there any sort of practical steps that you take as a, as a as a fund to make sure you're seeing a diverse you know bunch of founders coming to you and you're attracting those kind of ideas or um or is it just in the because my worry is that if it's all about networks and networking it, it's kind of the people that are outside of those networks that we need to kind of try and accommodate so I, I just wondered if there's any kind of practical steps you take within the business to try and encourage um more diverse founders coming to you with their with their pitch decks for example well it's actually important i'm glad you mentioned this concept of what do we mean by network mm. uh Yes, we are building a network and maintaining one, but at the same time, we make a brand promise to our limited partners to see everything in InsureTech mm -hmm. in all of North America and Europe, including Israel. That's our goal. I'm not sure we've met that goal yet, but that is our goal. It's a big so goal, though. <laughs> it's a lot of goal, ideas. <laughs> right? And so our team uh, does a lot of outbound calling. As soon as there is one press release that hits a small pub that says, oh, by the way, someone just raised a seed round, friends and family, and this is what they're doing. That hits our radar and we're reaching out to that entrepreneur to make sure we see everything. So in that regard, our filter is not, I would say is not biased because we're trying to see absolutely everything. Now, if you were asking that question about the industry, I think you're touching on a important topic. 
And that is if you're just waiting for your friends and your professional uh, network to send you what they think the best ideas are, then you are at risk of certainly not seeing um, uh, the more diverse uh, non-traditional founder who actually isn't part of one of those networks to begin with. Mm. Uh, in which case they have to be found in another way. And so I think we do a good job, at least in that regard at MTech. Sure, sure. No, I mean, that's a that's a very practical way to do it. See, see absolutely everything. I mean, it's I always think about venture and hiring people in a similar way. You know, when you're seeing pitch decks, you've only got so much capital, you've only you only get to deploy it once, well, to, the, to the, in the first instance and write that check. Yeah, it's like hiring the right person. Um, that's the equivalent of kind of basically seeing everyone that could possibly do a role and, and then and then you're going to get rid of kind of some of those kind of challenges of, of, of discriminatory hiring so um certainly one way of doing it but um yeah you set, set yourself a hard hard challenge there but um it's funny though because i was just thinking we do that <laughs> we do that in my business anytime there's someone someone's got anything we, we just want to speak to them because we, we're interested um and 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 we know it's probably not for now but it might be for the future um because how how important is it to you as well and, and perhaps i can come to you on this kevin um uh, is is it to build those relationships early like even potentially before it's the right time for you to invest if they've just done a let's say they've done a seed round and you might want to get in at series a because you you've missed out you haven't seen it how important is it to sort of for you to build a relationship with those founders and 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 how do you do that on a practical level because you know that's a lofty goal trying to reach out to everyone. So sort of how do you manage that time and that outreach um, personally? Sure. We, um, well, firstly, we have a team. Yeah. Um, so we have an investment team comprised of six of us um, for associates and they are uh, proactively every day uh, reaching out to companies. And so we see uh, kind of 60, 70, plus companies per month that are met with as a firm. Um, and we, um, we just, as Brian said, we make it a goal to see the whole market. Um, we, when, we, um, when we see a company and we determine that it's too early, um, we make it a point to circle back to that company in six or 12 months to you know, assess progress. Um, and we do that you know, as just a matter of course, really. Mm -hmm. um, and it helps to be stage agnostic in that regard. Uh, recently, we just uh, invested in a company where we saw it at the Series A stage. We're interested to invest um, for a couple of reasons we didn't. And we, after it's nearly three years, now circle back and invested in their series C. So we really do like to cultivate these relationships because, um, you know, it's, it's like an M&A process. When you, when you come back and revisit a founder and, and their team, um, having got to know them earlier, it just makes the whole evaluation process for us much easier. We know what to look for. We, we want to know what has changed during that period. And we've also seen that um, entrepreneurs value what we bring um, at different stages in their own progress. Mm. 
And so some entrepreneurs want that insured tech specialized fund involved right in the series seed or A. And then others say, well, you know, I think I'm going to have a SaaS software um, a VC expert lead my round. And when I'm actually ready to focus more in a one, let's say, sector or another, then I'll add, let's say, insure tech or fintech a little bit later. And so we take advantage of that as well. We see someone in a seed round and maybe a large firm shows up and takes up the entire round. Uh, we're going to be there for the next round tracking that entrepreneur. And then we get the benefit of what Kevin just described, which is you get to evaluate a, uh, a team over time. Sure. That's that's something that I was I was interested to see recently. I was working with a company that that basically had raised. They were at seed stage, but they've done a friends and family round, but they've managed to raise quite a significant pile of capital. Um, uh, and then on top of that, they they'd taken what they very much determined a, a, a strategic investment, which was exactly as you described that they they went with a firm that had um, insurance related, similar to yourselves in terms of makeup, they, they had some of those kind of networks and distributions. And that was the pure reason that they took it. And in fact, they took it not really needing the, the, the capital. Is that a situation you've ever found yourselves in? And, and how does that play out in your world? Do you, do you want to get the money in anyway? But if they're, if they're sort of openly saying they don't really need it the investment does 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 that put you off making it um i don't know how all, clear all, that question was but. all depends on terms <laughs> so sure, yeah uh, you know usually what happens in fact i had this conversation with an entrepreneur only yesterday mm -hmm. they just closed a seven million dollar financing they certainly don't need any more money and they only have five employees at uh, at this moment so clearly they're in a way fully funded no doubt about it Sure. And yet the entrepreneur was so intrigued by uh, our approach and quite regular knowledge of, of, uh, of uh, this entrepreneur's business that um, we talked about uh, an opportunity for MTech to invest. Now, exactly when that happens, not clear. Terms were certainly not discussed, mm -hmm. um, but on the right terms, imagine let's make it easy. Uh, hey, instead of having seven, uh, maybe you should have nine. Um, we, we put $2 million in right now. Um, there'd be incremental dilution for the entrepreneur and for the firm that already invested, uh, but they may decide that that makes sense. Or maybe it's just a slight uptick in valuation and then it still might make sense. And so, yes, that conversation happens with us regularly, regularly um, uh, especially when we discover that a company exists because there was an announcement of some capital raising. Sure, sure. Uh, so it comes up maybe more uh, more often than you might think in that context. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, we touched on this earlier, and on a, on a, on a, on a big topic. So I wanted to, you know, definitely take a run at this. Um, you know, we're we're seeing a price correction. Um, we've seen the larger insure tech stocks, you know, not do so well. Um, is this a positive thing for InsureTech specific funds like MTech Capital, as opposed to some of the funds that are playing in the space that aren't InsureTech specific? Is there some of that price correction a positive thing for, 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 for firms like yourself? I think if you're, if you're referring to Alex, um, the InsureTechs that, that listed, mm -hmm. um, in the US, it's kind of like the uh, six or so 
listed there who are all down 75% or more. You know, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make the connection um, that there are, uh, uh, it was a reflection of overvaluation of the insured tech sector, mm-hmm. but rather I think the, um, the loss in value in those companies actually preceded the general market, you know, the turn of the general market mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of this year. So they were already on their way down. Um, and the takeaway, I think, from those listed insure techs was quite simply that they went to the public markets too early. Right. I mean, uh, you're just a long way from being uh, IPO ready um, unless you are, you know, you can present kind of, uh, you know, financial results that have uh, some degree of predictability mm-hmm. um, because equity analysts in the, in the uh, public market space, of course, they're looking, they're modeling, you know, um, companies' uh, projections. They want to be able to rely on kind of guidance from companies as to what financial metrics they hit and when. And if, if you're just still an early stage company and you're going, you're in now you're, uh, the public markets and you miss your first two quarters of, let's say, of even top line, mm-hmm. you know, premium or it could be revenues, you very quickly lose credibility in the investment community. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of a downward spiral from there. So I think the takeaway is really that um, insure tech should be really cautious about being drawn to the to the you know to IPO too early. They've got to really make sure their business has attained a, a degree of maturity, and and therefore kind of predictability, uh, because that's what public market investors expect. Sure. And I have sure. to say, it felt to me almost comically uh, nonsensical that uh, some of these companies went public. Reminded me of you know 1997, 1998, where companies that had no business. They did. They did not have their business instrumented, and yet they were uh, they were entering the public markets. And the SPAC phenomenon of 2021 uh, and 2020 also made it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one of our portfolio companies uh, consider a SPAC, uh, and Kevin in particular spent a lot of time, you know, uh, talking them down off the wall, uh, thinking about. Uh, uh, going public at such an early stage and to think that some of these late stage investors who have you know um a preferred stock right and so they have some liquidation preference protection uh were willy-nilly willing to convert to common stock in the context of an ipo and then have the the stock go down 90 percent uh they are literally uh down pretty big and so i think there are some, some real mistakes were made by some late stage investors mm. Yeah, it was a really interesting time. And we've talked about it a few times on the podcast and that, the, you know, just looking at the fundamentals from a kind of really, you know, I did economics at university and I was, <laughs> sometimes you think, am I missing something? Because this doesn't look like it's in the right position. Um, and then, you know, sometimes, sometimes the answer is, 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 is as clear and simple as that. And I think, um, yeah, I think, I think too early is a, is a, is a, is a kind way of looking at it, but certainly I think probably the right way of looking at it. But and what given, it doesn't do, sorry, Alex, just to no, no, add one more point on that. It um, what it doesn't do um, is change the um, the attractiveness of the whole investment thesis 
for InsureTech. So, I mean, we have complete conviction that uh, the insurance industry is only at the very beginning of a decades-long transformation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're, we believe there are going to be some really large IPOs you know, someday in the future of insure tech businesses. But it's just that those that went, they kind of jumped into the public markets too early. But sure. not, not to be confused with the, with the strength of the underlying proposition or subvert the underlying proposition of, um, of, the, of what's coming with the transformation in the insurance industry. Now, that said, some later stage investors, given the downturn, uh, are cautious on insure tech right now. So uh, in that context, in the short run, I think it has been bad for business uh, for the sector uh, because some um, uh, more generalist investors who can write larger checks, let's say, uh, have become extra cautious uh, about insure tech relative to maybe some other sectors. And I think that's unfortunate. Mm. Yeah, you've you both mentioned your uh, thesis there. Um, has your thesis changed in the past twelve months, given given the kind of the change in environment? Are you are you looking for different things? Um, um, and if you are, is is that just kind of natural that that you you would evolve and change the thesis, or or is it stuck very much the same um, in let's say the last twelve months? I don't think that our theses have changed, but I do think some practical considerations can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. And so if uh, an entrepreneur is chasing a very big idea and already has a $2 million a month burn rate, uh, you know, in 2021, you could be pretty highly confident that they will be able to support that burn rate by going out to raise a $50 million plus round or even a $100 million uh, plus round. And we had four companies in our portfolio raise, uh, you know, $75 million plus uh, in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one, at least in their right mind, would think, oh, yeah, that'll be easy in 2022 sure. um, to go raise an amount of capital to support that kind of uh, business plan with, with that kind of growth projected. And so the practical uh, outcome is, um, uh, yes, you might have to have a lower uh, uh, growth rate. Let's take that 50% plus burn uh, growth rate down to, you know, hopefully not, not less than 30. Uh, and then um, not augment your team nearly as quickly as, uh, as you had might have done in the past and control your marketing uh, spend to a degree that you wouldn't have wanted to in 2021, but you're better now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's get that burn rate down so that you can raise a more modest round of capital and still be attractive to the market. So that's just a practical consideration in, a, um, uh, in the current market. Mm. How much are you involved as, as investors in, in relaying that, that, that message? Do, is, it, is it a message that does need to be relayed? Do, do the entrepreneurs sort of get it immediately? Uh, I suppose that's kind of, yeah, where, where, do, where do you get involved in that conversation? Because obviously that's a difficult conversation to have, that they're aware of their burn rate, but let's say they're a first time founder, how much kind of do you have to step in and say, look, market conditions have changed. You know, you need to kind of have a look at that, particularly as I know you're on so many boards. Um, yeah, how direct does that conversation have to be? You're right, it can be a, a really delicate conversation. 
Um, and um, I, I have to say what, what seems to help is if there is a, an imminent need for a capital raise, yeah. uh, they are more likely to follow the advice. Mm -hmm. And so they understand that market conditions have ch ch changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that uh, when we describe for them um, the issues that we foresee investors, new investors will have in kind of the current co configuration of the business, mm -hmm. that I think they're more inclined to listen closely at that point and, and make the necessary cuts. Mm -hmm. um, if they've got, you know, 18 months or 24 months of runway, in other words, you know, in terms of cash, um, they may feel, well, uh, you know, I think I'll resist that because I think it might impact my top line growth by making some of these cuts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then Kevin, yeah, there's also like this emotional element uh, to these conversations as well. It's sometimes a big emotional element where an entrepreneur has promised that certain growth rate, now has the capital, and would be taking a big risk to just have 18 months of runway with that much capital, they could easily make it three years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, that's when the conversation coming from an outsider uh, like us uh, can help uh, you know, refocus what's really important, right? It's the market's changed. You probably can't meet your promises uh, regarding growth rate. And so you'll have to get over that. And what, what puts companies out of business is running out of money. So don't run out of money. And yeah. uh, you should probably think about three years and not 18 months in terms of what your runway should be. Because mm. it's a hard adjustment. I, th I think there was a lot of people out there. Let's be honest, people are, I think there's a certain degree of people that are skeptical of businesses that, that raise venture cash and then they go out and build businesses. I think there's always, there's always going to be some people that, love to watch those things fail i think that's just the unfortunate nature of humans um and what i found a bit frustrating about this period was was people having to make these adjustments and and it, it was people really kind of in almost kind of enjoying that and 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 saying there were bad businesses that badly run and, and and the argument i've been having is that no it's just that the environment's changed it was perfectly reasonable to run a business that's focused on growth knowing that you could raise your next round with relative relative ease as long as you were growing and giving the numbers and now that environment's changed and so the rules of the game have changed and the rules of raising capital have changed as a result of that and, and i always thought that was a bit it was unfair um and uh you know people i don't know maybe it's the britishism we we, we do we like to see people fail i don't know i think we root for the underdogs you know we're, we're uh, <laughs> um but have you have you seen entrepreneurs struggle to make that adjustment um, you know, how, how hard do you sometimes have to push that? Is, is that where the various investors work together? If there's, if, if you're kind of multiple, your multiple investors in the same fund, how does that, how does that work? If you get an entrepreneur that you really feel isn't, isn't aware, they're aware because you've told them, but they're not taking the message on board. How do, how do you manage that? Well, Kev, I think you have one, you have an interesting example of, uh, of, uh, company and i think it's probably true across uh, across companies and and you know you know serial entrepreneurs will tell you this that in hindsight um uh, you probably had a little fat in your organization and there are probably some 
uh, key priorities upon which you're spending a lot of money that ended up in hindsight, not so terribly important after all. Sure. And, a, and, and a downturn like this that changes the rules, as you've said, can cause you to more easily make those cuts in areas that probably weren't driving a great ROI anyway. Mm-hmm. And some entrepreneurs are slower to capture that opportunity uh, than others. And some really have to be reminded more than once, hey, you probably are wasting money in this area and now's the time to stop. Mm-hmm. But Kevin has uh, has an example of that just recently, uh, which uh, I'll let him uh, touch on if he'd like to. Yeah, you know, I would just I I, I would go back to uh, an earlier point I made. It is kind of the imminence of a capital raise that's sure. that, in my view, seems to um, uh, to drive the impact of your message. Mm-hmm. So in in the you know, in the case of what uh, the company Brian is alluding to, um, yeah, they needed to raise capital. They were a few months away from, you know, running out of cash. Uh, And that certainly focused their mind. And when you had, you know, us and the rest of the board being very clear about the importance of making really significant cuts in the burn rate, um, they had to listen. And, you know, in juxtaposition to that, uh, I had a call this morning with uh, another portfolio company that is doing well. Um, And they've probably got about mm, nine or 10 months of runway left. Um, And we talked about the idea of certainly, you know, freezing, for example, hiring for the moment and looking across the business at some of these adjacent projects that aren't really contributing to top line growth. Uh, but are costly. And, you know, I think that was, um, you know, we listened, but uh, not inclined to take those (laughs) steps at this point in time. Yeah. yeah. Um, So Uh, we'll see. A polite nod, but you know, it's not getting action that quickly. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, Alex, we're minority investors, like every VC firm. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we can sit on the board as directors or observers, um, but, you know, in that, in that respect, you're, you know, the, the, the founder, the CEO presents a strategy to the board, the board approves the strategy, and then it's up to them to execute. Mm-hmm. And you can provide then uh, kind of advice in terms of course correction along the way, but it's kind of, it's kind of their show. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, that's, those are like the frustrating conversations I have when I'm, I'm, I'm advised for my opinion on who they should hire. And uh, <laughs> and they go the other way and you go, I hope it doesn't go wrong, but I've seen it go wrong before. Um, sure. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I um, I, I, I want to, I, I felt like we started finishing on a negative. So I want to give us a chance to finish on a positive, but I'll make this our last question because I, I don't want to overstay our welcome. Um, I just want to know what you're both excited about. In Texas, this very long, you know, uh, very broad description, everything from you know, adjacent technologies all the way through to kind of a full stack digital insurers. Um, what's, what are you excited about at the moment? Is, is there particular things that kind of interest you? I've got a bit slight obsession with claims technology at the moment, but that's just, that's just me because I used to work in claims. Yeah, uh, perhaps to start with you first, Brian, is there anything particularly out there technology-wise or other that's interesting you particularly? 
Yeah, I think uh, there's been some investment, but there really hasn't been an impact yet on the industry in a couple of uh, in a couple of areas. One is I think really customer journeys are going to be remade. If you look forward, uh, you know, let's give it a long time. Look forward five years plus. Um, how you interact with your insurance company as a consumer or a small business is going to change pretty dramatically, and I'm not sure that's really happened yet. I mean, a handful of companies have done so, but many others have not. And then the other one I'll mention uh, is AI. Uh, you could argue that insurance is the most data intensive or among the most data intensive industries in the world, mm -hmm. uh, certainly given its size and the amount of data it has. And it is other, under invested in a, a variety of data technologies, but one in particular is the impact that AI can have on underwriting, fraud, claims, you name it. Um, and even if you are a large international player and you've built a data science team, uh, you, know, you ask the average person inside that company, have your core underwriting models become AI decision engines? The answer is no, mm -hmm. just no. Um, some of that's regulatory related because you have to bring the regulators along uh, on this journey as well. Uh, but I think that's going to be an enormous impact and where you'll see it is you'll see the companies that embraced it versus the companies that have not. And adverse selection is likely to show up in the portfolios of the companies who have not uh, uh, made that investment. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I look forward to seeing those changes. Um, Kevin, any, anything from you that's specifically uh, exciting for you at the moment? Very specifically, it would be the potential um, for AI and specifically machine learning to transform underwriting. So when I look at, if just focus on P and C, you know, um, and you're thinking, you know, a hundred cents on the dollar um, claims, right? Loss adjustment expense might be five or six points, you know, um, loss ratio is going to be 60 points, you know, and so we're, we're focused on kind of the plumbing of insurance because we think that's where the most value creation is mm -hmm. and will come from. And so even within that plumbing, you know, underwriting um, is in my mind, the, the area where uh, there is scope for the greatest potential value creation. Mm -hmm. And so I am just fascinated by the potential of AI, big data to, um, to identify, you know, correlations uh, between factors between, uh, across data that have high predictive power, like we haven't seen before, or actuaries haven't seen before. And so mm -hmm. I, that to me is really exciting. Yes, we do see uh, companies that are using um, uh, AI in underwriting, but I have to say not, not, not that much. And we haven't certainly seen a, a real empirical evidence of impact. And so that's the one I, uh, that I personally look out for. Yeah, super. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the, the, the true AI stuff, I think we've yet to see excitement of. So yeah, I await that with bated breath. But um, 
I don't want to overstay my welcome. You've been really generous with your time. So I want to thank you. Um, thank you, Brian and Kevin. Um, I'm really pleased you made the time to get this done. Um, yeah, it was a big, big tick on my list of, of, of wanting you guys from MTech Capital to come along. So um, thank you very much for being guests on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insurtech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, of alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.